I want to start by telling you about something that happened um, about eight or nine years ago. My, my husband, David, and my son, Matt, and I were working around the house on a Saturday when we heard what sounded like helicopters, uh, low-flying helicopters in our neighborhood. And we looked outside, we saw these helicopters, and, th- and we noticed this gray, thick, billowing smoke billowing from somewhere in our neighborhood. And at first we thought, well, maybe a helicopter has crashed. These other helicopters have come around it or something. And my husband headed out the door and went a couple of cul-de-sacs down and discovered that uh, a house was on fire. And... In fact, he was standing there when the family who owned the house drove back up to the house. They had left for like 30 minutes, and they came back, and their house had been completely destroyed by fire. And David walked back home kind of sobered by what he had seen. I think, you know, when you see something like that, uh, you can't help but think to yourself, whoa, what would I do? How would I respond to something like that, right? You know, I I just remember thinking that day, what would it be like? And how would I respond if I drove off just on a quick errand and came back and my house uh, was completely gone? I think another reason I thought about that that way that day was because of a story I'd read that week. That week, I'd read a a story that I'm sure I had read many times in my life, but somehow... It just hit me in a much more profound and deeper way than ever before. And it's this ancient story of this man named Job. And as I read Job's story that week uh, about his incredible loss, there's this man who was a real person and he, he lost everything he had and nearly everyone he loved, and then he lost his own health. And when I read his story that week, I just remembered thinking so clearly, what would I do if that happened to me? How would I respond to that? Um, What would I do if that thing comes along that, in a sense, I, I feel like my world has fallen apart? How would I respond to tragedy? And I imagine that there's many women in this room who wonder that too. Um, while you've experienced some hurts in life along the way, perhaps maybe some of you have been relatively free of significant loss and heartache. But then there are others of you who have faced it, and you know exactly what it's like for the worst thing you can imagine to, in a sense, become a part of your reality. Well, a couple of weeks after the neighbor's house burned down, I went to the hospital and I gave birth to a daughter that we named Hope. And when Hope was born, Hope was born, and uh, the first thing that was immediately noticeable was very significant club feet. But, of course, my pediatrician or my OBGYN said, well, you know, don't worry about that. You can put casts on that. We can take care of that quickly and easily. But you're going to want to have a pediatrician take a, a good look at her. And so that day, my pediatrician came, and he did take a good look at her. And he came to our room that night, and he had brought with him this little piece of paper, and he had made a list on it. He said, I've made a list of a number of little things that I see that are wrong with hope. In in addition to the club feet, she's very lethargic. She's not moving much. She's not holding her temperature. She's a little underweight. Um, She's got a real large soft spot and a flat chin and some extra skin on her neck. Uh, And he said, you know, a lot of times when we see a number of little things wrong, they actually add up to something more significant. And so I want to have a geneticist come and take a look at her tomorrow. And so that next day, a geneticist from Vanderbilt came over and examined Hope. And he came to our, my hospital room that night, and he told us that he suspected Hope had a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. I had never heard of that before. Uh, he explained that what that meant was that Hope was missing a tiny subcellular particle that you and I have in every cell of our bodies called peroxisomes. 
And the best way I know how to explain it in non-medical terms is that these peroxisomes are kind of like our cell's trash man. And they have one kind of trash they're responsible for taking out of the cell, which is long-chain fatty acids. So he explained that basically this place where the peroxisomes were supposed to be in her cells was empty. And so there's nobody to take out the trash. And what that meant was these long-chain fatty acids built up in her systems and become toxic. And he explained because of that, a lot of damage had already been done to all of her major organs, especially her liver and her kidney and her brain. He told us that there was no treatment and no cure. And then he dropped the bomb on us that most children with this syndrome live less than six months. He handed us uh, two pieces of paper Xerox out of a medical textbook that listed out everything that was likely wrong in Hope's body and everything that would likely go wrong, and then he left. (laughs) And David crawled up into the hospital bed with me, and we cried, and we cried out to God. I, I imagine it was not a very eloquent prayer, but a really desperate prayer. I think it was just help us. <laughs> we don't know what to do. And we want to trust you with this, but honestly, God, we don't have any idea what that's going to, to look like, what it's going to mean to trust you. And in the days after that diagnosis, as we learned to feed hope with a tube and as we awaited the anticipated onset of seizures and as we sought to do everything we could to um, make the most of her life, I went back to Job. And I went back to Job because I wanted to look more closely at how this godly man responded to the loss in his life when his world fell apart. I know there are women in this room that you have been there. You have experienced your world falling apart. And maybe it was that day your husband walked in and told you that he had been unfaithful or that he did not love you anymore and didn't want to be married to you. Or perhaps it was when your child rejected your values or rejected you. Maybe in this economy it came with the loss of a job or the loss of a business. Maybe it was a, a difficult diagnosis that you've had to learn how to live with. Or maybe, like me, you have experienced losing someone you love to death. And if so, you know what it's like to sense that your world has fallen apart. And if that's you, then you understand why I was so desperate to try to figure out what Job's secret was. You see, I had read that book of Job that week and was incredibly intrigued by the last verse in the version I read it in because Job's incredible story of loss ended this way. It said, and Job died having lived a long good life. And I just remember reading that and thinking, (laughs) I don't think so. That's, That's not what I would describe as a good life. And honestly, ladies, at that point, I thought my life will never be good again. I couldn't imagine how it would be. And so I went back to the story of Job because I wanted to figure out how does a person lose so much And question God boldly and honestly in the face of that loss. And yet emerge from that loss, not as a hard, bitter, defeated person. But emerge from that loss with a life that could be described as good. That's what we want to look at this weekend. First, tonight, we're going to examine Job's suffering and his initial response to that suffering. And then 
in the morning in our first session, we'll consider the questions Job asked in all of his questioning God with the suffering, questions that you and I ask in the midst of our suffering. And then in our third session, we'll listen in as God answers Job and speaks to Job from out of a storm. And throughout these sessions, we're going to discover how the suffering Job experienced changed Job and how it can change us. So like Job, we can emerge from our suffering with a life that's described as good. So you ready to dive in with me to the book of Job? Well, I hope you brought your Bibles. If you didn't, are there some around maybe? I think I saw some in some stacks. Turn to the book of Job if you would. And if you're like me and have a hard time finding it, kind of open up to the middle of the Bible and you'll probably get into like Psalms or Isaiah and go back. Job is the book right before Psalm. And we'll begin in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and I'll read it. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. We read there, it says that Job was the greatest man in all of the East. So let's ask the question first. What made Job great? Well, first of all, we can tell from this that Job was a great man morally. Do you see that? Verse 1, it says he was blameless and upright, that he shunned evil. Now, if he was blameless, does this mean he never sinned? No. But it does mean he didn't live a life marked by ongoing sin. He didn't chase after a life of sin. He didn't take sin lightly. Job was a man who loved what God loves and hated what God hates. That is the mark of a great person, isn't it? So Job was a great man morally. He was a great man personally. Seven sons, three daughters, seven, the perfect number. Um, In other words, Job had the perfect family. He's sitting pretty, okay? He was also a great man financially, 700 sheep, 300 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. In our terms, we would say that Job lived at the best address, and he drove the nicest car in town, and he ate at the best restaurant, and he had plenty of money in the bank. But Job was also a great man spiritually. We read there, it says that he, Job, feared God. Evidently, God had revealed himself to Job. And in light of that, Job knew enough about himself to know that he was a sinner. And he knew enough about God to know that a blood sacrifice was needed to deal with sin. Job's understanding of the holiness of God gave him a great sensitivity to sin. And we read that he wasn't just concerned about his own sin. But he's even concerned about the sin of his ten children. And so we read that verse 5 says, early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering. Now, I kind of think anything you do early in the morning is a sacrifice myself. (laughs) But early in the morning he would get up and sacrifice just in case his children had sinned. And it says this was his regular practice. So Job was consistent in his obedience to God. Not perfect, but persistent. You know, a person isn't great because he or she never sins. What makes a person great spiritually is a great sensitivity to sin and a lifestyle of repentance. A person who never wants sin to build up a barrier between her and God. Now, why is it important that the writer here tell us that Job was a great man? 
mean, does it really matter whether or not he was great? I think it's because oftentimes when we see someone we think of as as a great and a good person, when incredible suffering comes into that person's life, something inside us says, of all people, she doesn't deserve that, right? There's, we have this sense in which, okay, you know, if, um, if you're doing the right things and you're living in the right way and you're clearly on God's team, then somehow you shouldn't have to experience significant suffering. But as we look at Job, we discover that contrary to our natural sense for the way we think ought of things ought to work, goodness and godliness is no guarantee that you will not have to suffer. I hear from a lot of people going through the loss of a child, and I can't tell you how often I'll have a conversation in which they or some other family member will say to me, uh, we did everything right. We, we waited till we got married to have sex. Uh, we're a family who prays together. We go to church together. So why is this happening to us? And as they say that, I realize that they have a very common thing that we tend to buy into. I think we have an equation in our minds. We've never said it this way. But the, way, the equation for which the way we think things work is, okay, so... Um, my spiritual intentions, um, my good behavior added to God's goodness and his love for me. Those two things added together equals for me a life in which I will not have to experience incredible suffering or loss. This kind of thinking reveals a profound misunderstanding of God's purposes and promises. God never promises us that we will not have to suffer. What he does promise us is that he will be enough for us in our suffering. He promises us that our suffering will not be meaningless. He promises to give us everything we need to endure our suffering faithfully. And he promises that the day is coming when our suffering will come to an end. So we've met Job, this main character in this story. Let's meet another key character in this story, and that is Satan. And the question we want to ask about Satan is, what does he want? What is he up to here? Okay, let's look at Job 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. (laughs) And Satan responds, kind of scoffing here. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? I mean, get real, God. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But God, if you stretch out your hand... And you strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Now skip over to chapter 2. Verses 1 through 6. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Again, this mocking tone, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, 
But you stretch out your hand and you strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then. He's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan comes before the Lord. Um, and he's been roaming around the earth. And the question is, what is he looking for? Well, he's looking for an opportunity to defeat God. What he really wants is the opportunity to show himself more powerful than God. What he really wants is to be worshipped as God. And interestingly, it is God who brings up Job's name. Now, why? Well, it would seem that Job has had an incredible track record of faithfulness in the midst of all of his wealth and success. And wealth and success can be as much of a test of our faith as loss and suffering, can't it? And here, evidently, Job has passed the test in regard to success and wealth. Um, in, this, in the midst of this, he has stayed humble before God. The truth is, we don't really know why God chose Job. And more significantly, God could have chosen anyone and given them the faith and grace they needed to be faithful to him, no matter what suffering Satan sent his or her way, but God chose Job. And Satan thinks that Job is in a relationship with God only because he is supernaturally protected by God and has such a comfortable life. And that if his comfortable life is taken away, that Job will curse God to his face, will turn on him. You see, Satan wants to prove that Job loves God only for what he can get from God. Satan recognizes that if you or I are in a relationship with God, only for what we can get from God, that the moment we're not getting what we want, we're out of there. If you only came to God because someone told you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you interpreted that to mean that God's wonderful plan for your life would mean that he would give you the comfortable, pain-free life of fulfillment that you had always dreamed of. If you thought that wonderful plan, by definition, would not include any undeserved suffering, then you will forsake faith at the first sign of adversity. If our relationship with God is more about getting what we want from God rather than getting more of God, then suffering will sink what we have described as faith. But evidently God didn't see it as his job to protect Job from physical harm or preserve his comfortable life. And what we see here. Uh, is interesting and honestly to me and somewhat troubling. Maybe it is to you too. Because look at verse 12, what God says when Job, when Satan comes before him. He says, all right, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, he readjusts the boundaries for how far Satan can go. He says, all right, do with him as you please, but spare his life. Satan has come to God asking for permission to harm Job. And God has said yes. I mean, I, this is a hard one for us, isn't it? Because it just doesn't fit <laughs> with our understanding of a loving God who protects us. And yet it's clear God gives the permission and he sets the parameters for Job's suffering. He says to Satan, okay, you can put his, him and his face to the test, but you can only go this far. And this reveals something significant to us about Satan, but ultimately about God. And this is, it is this, Satan wants power from God. You see, Satan has to ask permission from God 
because Satan has no power that has not been granted to him by God. Kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? I mean, we know that God is powerful, and we certainly believe that God is more powerful than Satan, that he's going to win in the end, right? But the deeper, more profound truth is that Satan has absolutely no power that has not been granted to him by God. That is how sovereign God is in this universe. And that is how limited Satan is in this universe. Although right now, Satan has been given a very long leash, hasn't he? (laughs) But the day is coming when that's going to come to an end. And Satan will be destroyed. So the question is, how does Satan want to use the power that God has given to him? What is it he wants to do? Here it is. Satan wants to drive a wedge between God and Job. That is the big goal, the drive behind the whole story, the big question. The question is, when trouble comes, will Job be faithful to God no matter what, thwarting Satan's plan and his presupposition? Well, if you don't get anything else tonight, I want you to get this. Satan wants to alienate you from God. And he will use whatever tool at his disposal to accomplish that goal. And a tool he often uses to accomplish that goal is suffering. So will Satan succeed in this goal of driving a wedge between Job and his God because of the suffering he brings into his life? Will Job get angry with God for seemingly falling down on the job? Will Job walk away resentful, perhaps feeling like a fool, forever trusting in a God that he couldn't see in the first place? Or, Will Job respond in a different way, a a way that puts Satan in his place and gives God the glory that he deserves? Is it possible that the tool that Satan wants to use to drive a wedge between God and Job could actually be used by God for a different purpose? Is it possible that this tool of suffering in the hands of the sovereign God, could actually be used not to alienate God from Job, but to draw him closer to God. And ladies, is it possible that God could actually use the suffering in your life not to estrange you from God, not to drive a wedge between you and God, but actually to draw you closer to him. Well, let's look at how Job responded because I think it's the difference comes in how we respond to the suffering in our life. So let's see how Job responded as everything he has and nearly everyone he loves is abruptly ripped away. I'm going back to Job 1, beginning in verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he's still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. So how did he respond? 
Job 1.20, tells us the first way he responded. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head (laughs) out of the deepest kind of agony from pain and loss. Job did what they did in their culture to express that deep sorrow and agony. He tore his robe and he shaved his head. He he didn't put any kind of religious sounding cliches on it. He didn't put on a happy face. Job openly mourned. He revealed openly the depth of his sorrow. He hurt. And he wasn't ashamed to show how deeply hurt. Some of you in this room know what it's like to groan with sorrow. Part of being human is that when you lose something or someone you love, you hurt. You agonize over that loss. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our daughter Hope was with us for 199 days. We loved her and enjoyed her and we held her during her seizures and we shared her with everyone we could and then we let her go. And in those days following Hope's death, I felt like there was, often felt like there was a boulder on my chest and like I could never take a There were so many tears inside me that had to come out. (laughs) I remember going to a cosmetics counter one time shortly after Hope died and asking the girl at the counter, will this mascara run when I cry? And she said to me, well, no. And she kind of says with a laugh in your voice, her voice, are you going to be crying? And I just looked at her and I said, yes, I am. (laughs) I mean, I've never... Before, I wasn't a big crier, and ever since then, tears are always close to the surface. You know, there's just a broken piece inside me. I think sometimes we feel, sometimes we get a sense in the church that if our faith is strong and vigorous, that hurts somehow won't have to hurt us quite so much. (laughs) I remember walking away from the Hope's grave after we put her body in the ground and David saying to me, you know, I think we thought our faith would make this hurt less, and it doesn't. You know, it it keeps us from despair. It gives us hope, but it doesn't make our loss hurt any less. Don't buy into this notion that if you have faith, that the hurts of life shouldn't hurt. I, I think sometimes... We think tears reflect a lack of faith, and they don't. Tears do not reflect a lack of faith. I think, in fact, tears are a gift, a gift that God uses to bring healing in our lives. Tears are something that helps to wash away the deep pain of living life in this broken world. But we see there's much more to his initial response to loss on Job's part than just tears of agony. In the same verse, let's continue there in chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. (laughs) You see, Job resolved to worship God regardless of how he felt. More than that, though, I think this was instinctive to him. This is who he was. He He's just gotten punched in the gut and what's coming out is what's inside of him. And what was inside Joseph was a sense of God's greatness. And so the natural thing for him to fall was to fall on the ground and worship. And I have to tell you, this is the thing that really grabbed me that week when I read Job's story the week before, a couple of weeks before Hope was born. When I got to that verse that his initial response to loss was that he fell on the ground and worshiped God, I was just like, How did he do that? Because I thought that would not be my initial response. Maybe maybe I could get to it at some point, but for that to just be the natural response. And the reality for me, ladies, is that worship has often been very hard for me in the midst of my grief. 
I think some of it is the words we sing in our worship. You know, we, we sing these words of so much confidence in God and so much gladness. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. Forever I'll love you. Forever I'll stand. I just got to tell you, in the months after Hope died, those words didn't come easily. They cost me something. But worship was the place where I brought to God my stumbling faith and my unanswered questions. And the reality of my difficult experience in worship met up with the beautiful reality of who he is. And it was in worship over over again that who he is got the final word. You see, we sometimes don't feel like worshiping, but we come to worship and we worship because he's worthy. Not because we necessarily feel like it. But what happens is that we worship him because he is worthy and we discover that he changes our feelings. Haven't you experienced that? You decide to worship because he's worthy and he changes your feelings. And the reality is in, if in a crisis we only do what we feel like doing, <laughs> we stay stuck in this cycle of self-pity. But when we worship, we take our eyes off of ourselves and our problems and our frustrations and we lift them up and we worship him. And what that does is it gives us perspective about our circumstances and our problems. What does Job say in his worship? Look at verse 21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So Job obviously has recognized that he is a recipient and a steward of God's gifts. That everything he has came from God, and it's still God's. During the six months that we had hope, um, my husband David would stay home with hope on Wednesday so I could go to Bible study. And I remember coming out one day from Bible study and immediately calling him on my mobile phone, calling home to see how things were going. And he didn't answer. And I thought, that, well, that's kind of strange. So I called his mobile phone and he answered And he said, we're at Dr. Ladd, the pediatrician's office. He said, but not for hope. He said, Matt fell in PE this morning and broke off his front tooth. I had to pull over on the side of the road. (laughs) And I think it was because it hit me in the area of my greatest fear, which is that maybe hope would not be our only loss. And I remember that night standing in the kitchen with David and us realizing together that we had both made kind of an unspoken agreement with God that went something like this. Okay, God, we will accept losing hope and all that means, but that's it for us. You know, that's like our one dose of suffering and As we accept this, this means no car accidents and no cancer and no financial collapse. But as we verbalized it there that night, we realized how ridiculous it was. Because, you see, everything we are and everything we have and everything we love is a gift. It's all his. And I remember us just standing there and saying, you know what, God, it's all yours. We are yours to do with as you will. You see, Job was somehow able to recognize that all of his extreme wealth and blessing not only came from God, but it was still God's. And he was just a steward of it. And you see, hope was a gift. And the proper response to a gift is gratitude. That's what we see in Job when he says, the Lord gave me everything I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. We realize that Job has learned how to hold on to the gifts of God loosely. 
Evidently, Job had long before figured out. It not only came from God, it was still God's. Now the truth is, God gives and God takes away. But can we be honest here tonight and admit we really only want him to give? Right? And we certainly don't want him to take away the things or the people that we love. We tend to think that the money in our bank account and the possessions we have are ours. We've earned them. We deserve them. Ladies, do you think you deserve a certain lifestyle? A handsome, loving husband, healthy, easy-to-manage children, a high-paying, fulfilling career? The real question is, what are you holding on to so tightly today that you would resent God if he were to take it away tomorrow? When we come to the place where we recognize that everything we have and everyone we love is a gift, it becomes possible for us to enjoy those gifts, not with an attitude of greed, I must have, I demand, but an attitude of gratitude for God, to God. Though Job has lost so much, there's still more suffering ahead for Job. Look in Job 2, verses 7 through 10. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble. So we get another glimpse into how Job responded to his suffering as he replies to his wife. And we realize that in contrast to our expectation today, that Job rejected the assumption that he shouldn't have to suffer. You see, we have an unspoken expectation that a good God will bring only what we deem to be good things into our lives. Yet we discover that suffering should not surprise us, that we should expect to suffer in this life. Can we just think for a minute about the people of faith, the most dramatic examples of people of faith in the scripture, lest we think that if you're really godly and a person of faith that you really shouldn't have to suffer, Let's look at this, think through the scriptures with me for a couple seconds, okay? Who's the father of faith? Abraham. Okay, can you imagine Abraham suffering month after month when Sarah's period would start again as they struggled with infertility year after year after year and then the suffering when her period stopped completely? Imagine his suffering after that child of promise finally came and God had told him to head up on the mountain and take that child's life and offer him as a sacrifice. Okay, how about David? What is David called in the scripture? The man after God's own heart. Well, he shouldn't have to suffer. Well, imagine David suffering as he ran from cave to cave being pursued by Saul. And imagine how much more it hurt years later to be running from the murderous intentions of his own son. Well, let's jump to the New Testament. Uh, A biblical character I'm fascinated with, John the Baptist. I love it that Jesus looked at John the Baptist and he said about John the Baptist, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. Well, he shouldn't have to suffer, right? And what do we know about John the Baptist's life? About being put in prison unjustly and he's there wondering if he was right about Jesus being the Messiah. And then his life ends at the whims of this girl who asked to have his head on a platter. I mean, ladies, what makes us think <laughs> that we should not have to settle? 
But of course, there's one whose suffering is even greater than Abraham or David and John the Baptist and Job, and that's Jesus himself. Jesus, the most innocent victim, the most cruel betrayal, the greatest physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering that ever a person, a human person experienced. And yet Jesus was not a victim of suffering. Jesus chose to suffer. He chose to suffer so that he could defeat death and bring about the day when suffering will come to an end. So why is it, since we follow a Savior who suffered, that we tend to think we shouldn't have to suffer? Or that if we're suffering, it means that somehow God has abandoned us or is not doing right by us. Finally, as we look at how Job responded to incredible suffering, we read at the end there of chapter 2, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So we realize that Job has refused to blame God and become bitter. Now, remember back with me where this story started. Remember what Satan really wanted? Satan wanted to drive a wedge between God and Job, and he was so confident that Job would curse God to his face, and yet here we discover that Job hasn't. Satan's goal has been thwarted and frustrated by Job's godly response to suffering. Ladies, it is a lie from Satan that you have every reason and complete freedom to become angry with God when bad things happen to you. You don't. You'll be tempted. But you don't have to give in to that temptation. Now, I want to make sure you're hearing clearly what I'm saying, because I'm not saying that being honest with God about how you feel is sinful. I am saying that as you work through your feelings about what has happened, feelings you may feel some anger. And as you work through those feelings, and most importantly, as you inform those feelings by what you know is true about God and how he works, you reject the temptation to sin by turning your back angrily on God. You correct all the incorrect assumptions about God that gave you any sense of justification for being angry with God. You may feel some anger, but you don't have to become an angry woman. Okay, are you hearing me? You can refuse to give in to that temptation. Genuine faith, ladies, is revealed when we hold on to what we know is true about God when we suffer. We refuse to point a finger in the face of God saying, you are not good, you have not done right by me. Lord, help us. Rather than allowing anger to tighten its grip on you, ladies, now is the time to grab hold of the promises of God and the person of God and lean on them like your life depends on them. Because it does. What true thoughts about God did Job grab hold of in the midst of his suffering that his life depended on? What was the hope that Job held on to? What is the hope that you and I can hold on to? It is this hope that gave him what he needed to respond in the way he did to so much loss. And we see the nature of this hope most clearly much later in the book. When at the lowest point of his life, at the lowest point of despair, Job's faith seems to be at its strongest. And here's what he says 
in Job 19, 25 through 27. He says, but as for me, I know, I, you see here the confidence, I know my Redeemer lives <laughs> and that he will stand on the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body will I see God. Job grabs hold of the hope of resurrection. The truth that Job held on to in the midst of his devastating loss was that God is a redeemer. That he's confident his redeemer is going to make something good and beautiful out of the rubble of his life. He is confident that God is, in fact, working out his plan to renew and redeem all things. And that the day is coming that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where those who love God in glorified flesh will in fact see God face to face and enjoy his presence and perfection forever. Now, Job couldn't make out clearly exactly who this redeemer was and how this redemption would be accomplished. Job, living long before Christ, came to purchase that redemption on the cross. Yet Job has confidence in his Redeemer. It's not, he's not as clear on who that Redeemer is, not as clear as we can be because we live on the other side of the cross. So while Job looked forward at the coming of his Redeemer and the redemption accomplished on the cross and couldn't see it clearly, ladies, we look back at the cross And we can see by faith that what Christ accomplished there was not something totally foreign to us. It's something that can be applied to us personally. Ladies, that's really the best and only hope any of us have to hold on to in this life. Whether we are undone by what life has done to us or simply undone by who we are. And what we have done. And so I have to ask you, before we go any further this weekend, have you ever taken hold of that hope for yourself? You know, when I talk about taking hold of hope or holding on to hope, I'm not talking about the way the world talks about hope. Though world talks about hope like this, right? I hope, don't know, but I'm hoping. I'm not talking about that. That's wishful thinking. I'm talking about hope, something that's solid and sure that we can take hold of. I'm not talking about holding out for the best or the positive outcome. You see, holding on to hope is taking hold of not a philosophy or a perspective about the future. Holding on to hope is holding on to a person, the living person of Jesus Christ. And have you ever really done that? I'm not talking, I'm not asking you, do you belong to a church or do you go to church? I'm not asking you, are you a spiritual person? Are you seeking after truth? I'm asking you, have you ever reached out and taken hold of hope in the person of Jesus Christ? And I want to close tonight by telling you a story. Some of you know it from the Hoping for Something Better book, but a story that illustrates what I'm inviting you to do tonight if you have never done so. A number of years, I went to speak at a a weekend retreat like this, and they were holding the retreat at what was usually a youth camp in Texas. And I got there a little bit late because my flight was late. And when I got there, all the women had gone out at this youth camp to ride the zip line. All right. Now, have any, how many of you have ever done this? Have any of you done this? Oh, a number of you. That's great. Okay. Well, this is a picture. If you haven't done it, what this is, is you see there on, on one end of this huge field was this five this tower that was five stories high. And there was another tower that high, about three football fields in length away. And there were cables that ran between these two towers. 
And so, uh, you know, what you would do, you go up the tower and you would, you know, step into these belts and harnesses and hook on to that cable and then push off and fly from one tower to the next. So I got there and all of the women that I was speaking to had gone down there to get in line to ride the zip line. And so I went down there and one of them says to me, you know, you're going to ride the zip line? I was like, well, well, sure. You know, I mean, I, I wanted them to think I was cool and I wanted them to like me. So yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And I didn't really think it through. And, (laughs) and so we waited in line a, a long time and, um, work my way up those stairs that were filled with women to the top of the tower. And when I get to the top and I begin to think to myself, I really do not want to do this. But the thing was, those stairs were filled with women. And it would have been like the hugest uproar to have to like go through, excuse, excuse me, excuse me, I, I, I just changed my mind. And I could just hear the women from the group I was going to speak to go, yeah, that's our loser speaker. She's, <laughs> she's too chicken. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do this, you know. So I, I get up the top and, you know, I, there's the little piece of paper there that's like their license of inspection or something. And, okay, I'm, I'm glad to see that. They have following procedure. They're all checked out. And there's a girl kind of working the thing. And I said, so how long have you been doing this? And she had been there all summer with evidently no fatalities. And so I was relieved to hear that. And she said, okay, you know, I'm going to put these belts and harnesses around you. And then you're going to sit down on the ledge, and then I'm going to count to three, and you're going to push off. And so uh, I sat down on the ledge, and she counted one, two, three, and I pushed off screaming bloody murder. (laughs) But my scream of fear turned immediately to squeals of laughter. And it was so much fun. If the line hadn't been so long, I would have done it again. Now, ladies, here's the thing. I could have stood at the bottom and watched all these other women go on that zip line. And perhaps you would have asked me, well, do you believe that that zip line will hold you? Do you believe those belts and harnesses will hold you? And I could have said, well, of course I believe that. Certainly I believe that. But you see, belief is not just standing on the edges of faith in Christ and looking at Christ and saying, sure, I believe that he is the way to know God. Sure, I believe that he can take care of me in this life and the next. You see, faith, holding on to hope, is pushing off. Okay? pushing off in the life of faith. You know, I, I think there may be some of you in this room who've never done that. You've been around religion and maybe you have always said, yes, I believe in Jesus. And yet you've never been willing to put your full weight on him to see if he can hold you. You've never put your full weight on him. You've never truly pushed off in the life of faith. And if you haven't, I want to ask you if you would be willing to take hold of him and push off tonight. Others of you have pushed off in that life of faith. And yet if you were honest, you would say, you know, along the way, there have been some things happen that I have loosened my grip. There have been some ways I'm still trying to take care of myself because I'm just not quite sure that I can entrust this one to God. If that's you, ladies, tonight, I'm asking you, would you push off and take hold, make your grip tighter in a fresh new way, telling him, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with my marriage and I'm going to trust you with my children I'm going to trust you with my finances. I'm going to trust you with my health. Would you push off taking hold of Christ in a tighter way than you have done before? Will you take hold of hope? You know, something happens when you push off on that uh, zip line. At first, you're like gripping so tight because you have this sense, it's up to me to hold on tight to not fall. 
And what you discover after you push off is that it's not up to you to hold on. Those belts and harnesses have you. They will get you to the other side and see it's the same way with Jesus. We push off thinking that it's up to us to hold on tight enough only discover that he has taken hold of us. And he has a firm grip on us, and he will not let us go. And he will get us safely to the other side. That's what it means to hold on to hope.